Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from our recent Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. And here, one of our Theopolis fellows, Drew Knowles, gives a talk on Theopolitan church planting and hospitality. As always, do check out those show notes. We are still in the midst of our video series, Walking Through the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart. There's a link to that series down there in the show notes, as well as links to our Psalm Chant videos, a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and more. We hope that you enjoy this talk, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Drew Knowles discussing Theopolitan church planting and hospitality. Well, today I, I'm going to be sharing how Theopolis has helped me to think through and articulate a vision for church planting and neighborhood-specific ministry that is fueled by and flows from the weekly Eucharist, which I believe trains us for Christian hospitality with our literal neighbors. Before I start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shown us great kindness, chiefly in your Son. Uh, We ask that you would please fill us with your spirit that we may extend that same kindness to others. Amen. Uh, Before I jump into the actual topic for today, I want to share a a bit of background on our church's philosophy of ministry and our 11-year history. That's confusing. He just said that I'm planting a church. Uh, I'm planting out of a church that I helped to plant 11 years ago. Um, Back in 2010, I moved to Houston and immediately joined a team of people who were planting a new church in the city. Um, My good friend Dodds was there too. Uh, It was an exciting and difficult season. I had leadership experience from some time in the military, but, um, but, but serving in a vocational capacity Um, was a unique challenge. Plus, our church had a vision for life and ministry in the neighborhood that truly captured my imagination. Um, And it began to answer some lingering childhood questions concerning the church. Most fundamentally, I felt like I had finally found a compelling answer to the question, what is the point of all of this? The church church we planted was organized into what we called neighborhood parishes. And that name is pretty confusing. We took the historical word parish and effectively redefined it for our purposes, applying it to our vision for missional community or small groups. We actually asked our members to move into the neighborhood where our church was located. And amazingly, most of them did it. And so we, we organized our neighborhood parishes by geography as opposed to life stage. And we encouraged the members of each neighborhood parish to love and serve the literal neighbors that they shared in common. And this became one of our greatest strengths as a church. In those first few years, most of the visitors who stayed were staying for the community that we had cultivated. And for the past 11 years, 100% of our members have belonged to a neighborhood parish. And back in 2010, um, being missional was, was all the rage. And to be honest, I think there was a lot of good biblical theology and ecclesiology fueling the missional church movement. God's primary missionary method is his covenant people. He has always purposed to choose a people to whom he would reveal himself and through whom he would reveal himself to the world. 
Alan Hirsch is a leading thinker in the missional church movement, and he defines a missional church as follows. A working definition of missional church is a community of God's people that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. We'll come back to that definition at the end. And so this may have been somewhat of a straw man, but the missional church shift was away from viewing mission as something individuals do when they go overseas. It was a shift toward recognizing God's local purposes through local churches. And it was a shift toward giving expression to what Leslie Newbigin called the hermeneutic of the gospel, which is the church community itself. Our common life together creates a lens or a rubric through which our neighbors may interpret the meaning of the Christian message. And so there were good things happening, and I think for some very good reasons. And yet the missional movement was largely a low church movement. The missional movement was at least partially in reaction to higher, more institutionalized methods. But for a church plant in a major city full of single men and women in their 20s, being missional, if I'm being honest, often looked like drinking beer together. But, but of course, that, that's not entirely fair. Um, our intentions were good and our efforts did bear fruit uh, by the Lord's grace. But even so, there was, there was something lacking in our overall concept. And, and I've since had time to diagnose the problem, or at least um, I have a theory. The way we conceive of Christian mission, and really the word mission itself, these are, these are highly abstract concepts. As we continued to call our congregation to missional intentionality, I came to suspect that the average church member didn't really understand what was being asked of them. Much less did they feel equipped to fulfill that calling. And yet, they were keenly aware that they were failing at something that they couldn't quite articulate. And so, so this was a recipe for confusion and burnout. But it was veiled behind exciting language and lots of energy. And, and so like Wile E. Coyote, we were, we were running hard for quite some time before we realized we weren't standing on much. And so that was my first major takeaway. Our concept of mission was too abstract. My second takeaway was this. Mission was unhitched from the Sunday liturgy. We had an anemic understanding of how corporate worship is meant to fuel the mission of the church. In fact, many churches within the missional church movement actively encouraged their members to neglect Sunday worship if Sunday worship conflicted with the weekly rhythms of those in their mission field. A Sunday morning round of golf with non-Christians was considered by some to be a better use of a missional person's time. Some churches began holding monthly worship services in the name of more effectively engaging the neighborhood. Now, our church had a relatively high liturgy, um, call to worship, confession, assurance of pardon, passing of the peace, sermon, weekly communion, benediction, and so thankfully we were never really tempted to devalue corporate worship in that way. However, we had a liturgy 
because we thought it was missional, which it is, which I think it is. But we did not do it because it was biblical, which I think it also is. Our liturgy was more of a strategy for reaching millennials than a strategy for equipping the saints and drawing near to God with a biblical rationale. And so in planting a new church over the past year, I was, I was hoping to capitalize on some of our strengths and correct or, or mitigate some of our weaknesses. In short, I wanted to find a way to articulate the priority of being missional and neighborhood engagement in a way that's empowering and tangible, not so abstract. And I wanted to find a way to explicitly connect mission with the Sunday liturgy. So step one was actually just preaching a more expansive gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is not merely Jesus died for my sins so that I could be justified by grace through faith. The the gospel is a royal announcement that the crucified and risen Christ has been enthroned as Lord of the whole world, the world, the King of Kings. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is working through us to bring everything under his dominion. And this is very good news because Jesus is not like the rulers of this world. And I'm convinced that our society is growing increasingly ripe for that gospel message. If you've read Crisis Opportunity in the Christian Future, you know that I'm just stealing that from Dr. Jordan. And so, so, so I know this more expansive gospel is probably nothing new for those who follow Theopolis. But in, in my corner of the evangelical world, I, I feel like this is just gaining some traction. It's not just about how individual people get saved. It's also about how God is establishing a kingdom of justice and righteousness, redeeming the entire cosmos, and not just in the distant future, but right here and right now. God is renovating the world, and we are his general contractors. So we can zoom out, and we we can see Jesus claiming authority over all the nations, but we can also zoom in, and we can ask the question, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to take root in a specific neighborhood? If the kingdom of God were to come here in our neighborhood, what would that look like? And what should we be doing in the meantime? And my answer to these questions begins with a biblical theology of hospitality. In the realm of biblical ethics, hospitality is a major theme. But more than that, hospitality is consistently linked with the mission of God and the coming of the kingdom. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we see God forming and furnishing a beautiful and comfortable home to share with his people. God invites Adam and Eve to feast in his presence. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. The story of creation is a story of God's gracious hospitality. In Genesis chapter 18, we see, we see Abraham taking after Yahweh. He goes way out of his way to welcome a group of strangers. He runs out to meet them. He pleads with them to stay. He washes their feet. He has them rest under a tree. He feeds them bread and water and milk and meat. And of course, this story is juxtaposed with Genesis chapter 19, which is all about the violent and rapacious inhospitality of Sodom. 
Abraham's hospitality brought fruitfulness and blessing, and Sodom's inhospitality brought judgment and destruction. And these stories were foundational to Israel's identity. The God of Israel was radically hospitable. The grandfather of Israel was radically hospitable. Maybe we should be radically hospitable. And that's, that's exactly what the law required. The aliens and strangers living in the land of Israel were to be treated as native-born. The famous command to love your neighbor as yourself actually comes within the context of hospitality. Why were the people of Israel commanded to be hospitable? Because it was foundational to Israel's identity. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, poor and helpless, in need of provision and protection. They depended upon the hospitality of God to meet them in their need and to create a beautiful and comfortable home for them to share with him. God provided them, provided for them and protected them in the wilderness, and then he gave them a home where they could enjoy rest, peace, and plenty. The story of the Exodus is a story of God's gracious hospitality. So we see the hospitality of God as we trace the narrative from Egypt into the land of promise, but we can also see it in the tabernacle itself. God commissions the forming and furnishing of a beautiful and comfortable home to share with his people. But more than that, he he commissions the forming and furnishing of a beautiful and comfortable home in order to extend his table fellowship to the nations. The story of the tabernacle is a story of God's gracious hospitality. If we jump forward to 2 Samuel, we see Yahweh promising to build David a house. And in 2 Samuel 9, David receives the grace of God and then pays it forward. And David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the last remaining member of a fallen and destitute house, and he was crippled in his feet. He was poor and he was helpless, and yet from that place of poverty and helplessness, just as he was, Mephibosheth was summoned by the king. But again, this was not just the kindness of David. David does not merely show the kindness of David. David shows the kindness of God. David extends to his neighbor the same hospitality he has received from God. The story of David is a story of God's gracious hospitality. The account with Mephibosheth is is also a powerful example of what we ought to mean when we talk about biblical hospitality. In the ancient world, hospitality was practiced first and foremost for the needy, the poor, and the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. Hospitality was primarily for those who were disconnected or isolated, people who were in need of provision and protection. And the most powerful act of hospitality, the act with the greatest symbolic significance, was the shared communal meal. Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table. To share food is to share life. Shared meals create intimacy and fellowship. That is true of every culture of the world. 
And that's precisely the context within which we see Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. Hospitality appears to have been essential to his strategy for discipleship and establishing the kingdom. And remember, these were tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wasn't whining and dining with the social elite. The feasting of Jesus wasn't limited to cocktail parties with his middle to upper class friends. He was, he was intentional about breaking bread with anyone and everyone, but especially the social outcast. Jesus is the fountainhead of true hospitality. Hospitality is essential to his nature, and hospitality is essential, I think, to the gospel. Jesus has restored our access to the house of God once and for all. The offer of the gospel is an invitation to a banquet. We read that during Matins this morning. The offer of the gospel is a once and for all washing, which opens the door to perpetual table fellowship. All are invited, especially the Mephibosheths of this world. We are all summoned to the table of the king, so the story of the gospel is a story of God's gracious hospitality. So having said all that, the first major change I made as we shifted toward planting a new church was linguistic. More often than not, I replaced the word mission with the word hospitality. Why? Well, because mission is abstract. The word mission is abstract. It leaves too much to the imagination. But the word hospitality is practical, tangible, action-oriented. It speaks to our posture, and it speaks to our practices. Now, the word hospitality may not encompass everything we would like for it to encompass, but, but I question whether we could come up with a single word that took us further. There is work to be done with the word hospitality, because People often picture hotels and restaurants and entertaining guests. But conveniently, a proper biblical understanding of hospitality cuts through this, this false dichotomy between mission as evangelism and mission as social justice. Christian hospitality provides the ideal venue for evangelism, and Christian hospitality provides the ideal context for social justice, for the pursuit of social justice. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. The practice of hospitality allows us to pursue both priorities simultaneously, both evangelism and social justice. Charity is good, but hospitality is better. We shouldn't just give to the needy, we should share with the needy. True hospitality requires more than your things. It requires your very self. Those who, those who have much should give to those who have little, but the giving should be done in such a way that the rich and the poor share in it together. There is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The exercise of true biblical hospitality is also an antidote to the, the globalist, humanist, 
faux solidarity that fuels outrage on social media but never actually results in helping an actual human being. Again, the church cannot settle for abstractions. We have to call people to more than tweeting their solidarity with the poor. The people of God should be willing to love with real, embodied acts of love. We should move beyond mere service to the poor. We should aim for communion with the poor. As a side note along these same lines, I, I highly recommend encouraging your congregations to engage with the foster care system. I think foster care is the, is the perfect picture of biblical hospitality in the modern world. But to be honest, when it, when it comes to fostering and adopting children, Christian couples are at risk of being outdone by the gay and lesbian communities. Not every Christian couple can or should foster and adopt children, and there are many other ways to get involved, but in every, in every city in the United States, there are poor, fatherless, homeless children just waiting to be grafted into the covenant people. They're just waiting for us to open our homes and extend the invitation of the kingdom banquet. They are just waiting for us to disciple them at our dining room tables and to welcome them to the Lord's feast on Sunday morning. Foster care is difficult and uncomfortable, but in terms of kingdom impact, I think it's low-hanging fruit. Okay. As I know you know, we are living through a time of unrest and uncertainty. People are isolated, lonely, divided, anxious about the future. We are no longer a society marked by hope. And even within the church, we're facing deep division across ethnic lines, across political lines, across theological lines. And so both in the church and outside the church, people are keenly aware right now that things are not as they should be. And and the Christian way to say that is that we are all longing to be restored and reconciled. We are all longing for communion, unity, harmony, justice, righteousness, communion with God and communion with one another. Thus, this is a wonderful time to be the church. Because communion is our specialty, right? Or at least it should be. For 2,000 years now, the communion table has stood at the very heart of the church's life. And the table fellowship we enjoy there is meant to mold and shape our life together. It's meant to heal our divisions and foster forgiveness, to bind us together into one body. And, and the communion table is meant to train us for ministry in the world. God, in his infinite wisdom, has designed a simple ritual whereby we mature into the very sort of community the world needs. A stable, harmonious, loving, grateful, generous, and hospitable community. The Eucharist, and that's what I'll be calling it moving forward, the Eucharist has the power to shape us and teach us in a myriad of different ways. But the most obvious feature of the Eucharist is that we are invited to eat and to drink. This is a food ritual. 
the tree in the garden, the Passover in Egypt, the manna in the wilderness, the festivals, the entire sacrificial system, all food rituals. And of course, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Feasting provided the context for some of his greatest miracles and most famous teachings. But for, for Jesus, hospitality was more than just a priority. Again, I think it was his strategy for welcoming people into the kingdom of God. And so it should be no surprise to see Jesus leaving his disciples with a food ritual. God has always done this. He has always taught and shaped his people with rituals involving food. But it's not just that God wants us to observe these rituals. It's that God actually wants us to commune with him in these rituals. Having welcomed us into his house, he wants to participate in the ritual with us. The God of the Bible is a hospitable God. He enjoys hosting dinner parties with his people. At the table of the Lord, the church is being formed into an alternative society. We are becoming a holy people, a distinct people. And our calling as a holy people is to carry the grace of God into everyday life. The love and communion we enjoy at the Lord's table serves as a model to be replicated out in the world. We are what we eat. Having consumed the presence of Christ in the sanctuary, we become the presence of Christ in the neighborhood. We are nourished by God, and so we nourish others. Jesus offers himself to us. We take, we eat, and then we offer ourselves to others. Or, to use the words of King David, having received the kindness of God, we show the kindness of God to others. This is what John Chrysostom called the liturgy after the liturgy. The table fellowship we enjoy with God trains us to enjoy table fellowship with others. We continue practicing love and communion with our Christian brothers and sisters, and we also offer love and communion to our non-Christian neighbors as well. We actually need to distinguish between these two types of love, love for the brethren and love for the stranger. Romans 12.10, love one another with Philadelphia, the love of brothers. Romans 12.13, seek to show Philoxenia, the love of strangers. That's the word hospitality. We can, so, so we cannot simply love our brothers and sisters within the church and then claim to have fulfilled this call to be hospitable. We're talking about the love of outsiders here. We're talking about loving them as though they were insiders so that they can become insiders. And again, I think this calling is inextricably linked to the reception of the Eucharist. To partake of the Eucharist is to assume this responsibility for hospitable living. In Romans chapter 12, Paul appeals to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Singular. Joseph Ratzinger actually leans on this passage when he argues for the Eucharist as the source of mission. He says that in the liturgy, we express our desire to become a Eucharist with Christ. And I think he's actually onto something because 
In, in Romans chapter 12, Paul then goes on to discuss the implications of the oneness of the body of Christ, a oneness that is established by the one bread. Our many different bodies are presented as a singular living sacrifice. But th this is more than just interesting, it's actually practical. And so Paul continues, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and, anybody? Seek to show hospitality. Seek to show love to strangers. And we see something very similar in the book of Hebrews. An exhortation to offer acceptable worship that results in Philadelphia and Philoxenia. Hebrews 12 and 13, if we ignore the chapter break. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Offer acceptable worship, love one another, and love strangers. That is what acceptable worship produces. That is the liturgy after the liturgy, treating brothers like brothers and treating strangers like brothers. Having become a singular sacrifice, having become a Eucharist with Christ, we live the Eucharist out in the world. And so the Eucharist is a missional propellant. It restores us to God. It restores us to one another. And then it sends us back into the world to extend that restoration project. So every Sunday, just prior to our benediction, this is what I, this is what I tell our church. We have all just experienced the hospitality and generosity of God. He has welcomed us into his house. He has forgiven us. He's instructed us. He's nourished us at his table. And now he is sending us back out into the neighborhood to extend that same hospitality and generosity to our neighbors. You see, I, I want my congregation to understand that what happens in the sanctuary is meant to be extended and replicated out in the world. There is a liturgy after the liturgy. In John chapter 6, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, a humble offering relative to the enormity of the need, right? But he multiplies the offering. So how and why can Christian mission be as simple as Christian hospitality? Because Jesus is the great multiplier of humble offerings. Is hospitality really an effective strategy for kingdom expansion? Can the hospitality we practice after the liturgy actually make the world a better place? Yes. In fact, I don't think, I don't think Christians should expect the world to change apart from practicing this sort of hospitality. It's that powerful and central to God's character and central to the Bible, and central to the ministry of Jesus. 
If you want to be blessed by God, according to Luke 14, if you desire to extend his blessing to others, then offer your table fellowship to your neighbors, especially to the social outcast. Just look at what Jesus was able to do with a boy who was willing to share his lunch. And of course, John 6 is, is all about the Eucharist, I think. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to all who were seated. That's the exact same formula as the institution of the Eucharist, Luke 22, verse 19. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. So, so this is what I mean in saying the Eucharist is a missional propellant. We enjoy the hospitality of God in the sanctuary, and then we extend the hospitality of God to others. We are sent to multiply the loaf. Too often when Christians think about mission, we think about doctrinal formulas and evangelistic strategies and apologetic arguments. But if every Christian household within a single congregation were to regularly feast with neighbors, especially the needy, we would not have to pray for evangelistic opportunities. We would not need to rethink and revise our missional strategies. It would be as simple as sending an invite, cooking a meal, giving thanks, and enjoying a conversation. This relieves the average church member from the pressure to answer every objection to the faith. There is, of course, a time for explaining and defending the gospel, but even the least mature Christian can say, come over, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is a good and gentle shepherd. He is a meek and generous king. He is radically hospitable, and he invites you to his table. At its core, evangelism is about welcoming all people to come and feast on the bread of heaven and the wine of the new covenant alongside brothers and sisters in the royal household of the King of Kings. Every Christian is thus a co-host with Christ. But before I move on from here, I want to take one more look at Genesis chapter 18. I mentioned this earlier. Um, there's one key detail in that story that I want us to see. In verse 6, Sarah takes three sayas of fine flour and prepares a feast for strangers. First of all, three sayas was an extravagant amount of flour. Abraham and Sarah practiced an extravagant form of hospitality. But this passage really opens up when we jump to Luke chapter 13. Jesus alludes to Genesis 18 when he says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like the leaven that Sarah kneaded into three sayas of flour. The kingdom of God appears small, and insignificant. It appears like a mere five loaves and two fish. But it grows, and it grows, and it grows over time. 
So Jesus is describing the growth and expansion of the kingdom within the context of hospitality here. The kingdom of God appears to be a relatively small and insignificant act of generosity, sharing a meal with neighbors. But that relatively small and insignificant act of generosity has the power to change the world when Jesus, the great multiplier, does what he does. The growth of God's kingdom is a matter of needing the leaven of the gospel into our neighborhoods and nations in the form of hospitality. The Eucharist leavens us, and then we leaven the world. And so, inhospitable church is a contradiction in terms. And hospitable church is redundant. A community of people formed around the Eucharist should be hospitable through and through. Hospitality is essential to the nature of the church, and hospitality is fundamental to Christian faithfulness. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Jesus' words here make me deeply uncomfortable. My, my impulse is to find any way possible to wiggle free from this. It's not safe to welcome strangers into my home. My neighbors are weird, or they'll think I'm weird. It's a recipe for incredibly, so, incredibly awkward social situations, and so on. But I cannot escape the fact that this is the clear, authoritative command of Jesus. This is not just a parable. This is a kingdom decree issued by the king himself. When you give a feast, not if, invite the poor, the homeless, the handicapped, the refugee, the widow, the residents of a nursing home, the single mother, the foster child. In so doing, you will be blessed. You will taste and see the kingdom come. And so the, the Eucharist is a propellant for mission, but the Eucharist is also a destination. Eucharist is where we are going, and Eucharist is how we are getting there. The table of the Lord is our final destination and the sustenance we need for the journey. Or, in other words, the telos of Christian mission is Eucharist, which is to say that the telos of Eucharist is Eucharist. Earlier I said that hospitality was, was central to Jesus' strategy for kingdom expansion. But here we can go further by saying that the that his hospitality was actually a manifestation of the kingdom. Christian hospitality brings the future kingdom into the present. As many have pointed out, several in this room, the shape of the book of Revelation mirrors the liturgy of the church. Put very simply, it begins with a penitential note, moves through the liturgy of the word, and ultimately culminates and climaxes with a shared meal. This is Revelation 19. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And so this marriage supper of the Lamb is the consummation of all things not least the Eucharist. When we partake of the Eucharist, we are anticipating the consummation of all things, but we are also participating in the consummation of all things. We long for the shared festivity of a future new creation, and as we eat the bread and drink the wine, that new creation breaks into the present. According to Alexander Schmemann, the Eucharist is indeed the preface to the world to come, the door into the kingdom. And this we confess and proclaim when, speaking of the kingdom which is to come, we affirm that God has already endowed us with it. This future has been given to us in the past that it may constitute the very present, the life itself now of the church. When the church truly embodies this this two-part movement, offering acceptable worship in the sanctuary and living the liturgy after the liturgy, when the church truly embodies this, we become a community marked by never-ending joy and festivity. We begin to fulfill 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Eucharist in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. More than that, when our destination breaks into our present, when the marriage supper of the Lamb is prefaced in the Eucharist, and when the Eucharist is multiplied and extended beyond the walls of the sanctuary, we are consecrating the world. We are preparing the world as a dwelling place for God. We accomplish this as we gather grain and grapes and the first fruits of our labor, as we gather our friends and family and neighbors, as we call upon the social outcast, we bring all of that into the sanctuary, and in so doing, the world is being consecrated into what it's becoming, a place for God to come and dwell with us. When Christ comes in glory, the preface and foretaste we have enjoyed in this life is going to blossom into the fullness of marital bliss. The bridegroom and the bride will live happily ever after in the home they have built together. And when that day comes and our eyes begin to adjust to the light, we will see that the kingdom of God was among us all along. The same Jesus we knew in the Eucharist is going to offer himself to us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So to conclude, I want to pull together everything I've said by introducing a concept I call the three tables. Table number one is the Lord's table, the Eucharist. That's the top portion of the triangle you see there in your notes. Now, table number two is somewhat specific to our church, But I think many churches have a similar structure. It represents the table we share, the tables we share, as neighborhood parishes. 
which is the primary place where we exercise Philadelphia, brotherly love. And table number three represents the dining room table of each, of each household within the church. This is the primary place where we seek to show philoxenia, the love of strangers. I've already spoken at length about table number one, but to reiterate, we are co-hosts with Christ. Jesus hosts a meal in the sanctuary, and we host meals in the neighborhood. So we actually prioritize sharing food together during our weekly parish gatherings. Um, we prioritize a, a weekly potluck. And that weekly potluck is an extension and a continuation of the communion we enjoy in the Eucharist. And so we are, we are modeling and practicing love, unity, joy, festivity, hospitality, and generosity. We are loving the brethren, and we are inviting our neighbors to see that life in the kingdom of God is very, very good. And that brings us to table number three. Hospitality was central to Jesus' strategy for welcoming people into the kingdom. We like to say that the kingdom of God comes block by block. And so we call every Christian household to regularly share meals with their neighbors. In fact, we encourage um, our members to shoot for three to five households per year, which for introverts is incredibly daunting and for extroverts is child's play. But we, we pray for our neighbors, invite them over, cook for them, serve them, get to know them, and ask thoughtful questions. We're not maneuvering or manipulating the conversation so as to lay out the gospel during that very first dinner. If that door opens, we walk through it boldly. But first and foremost, we just want them to feel loved. We want them to know communion. Um, now, those arrows on the chart in your notes, the, the Lord's Supper is centripetal. It draws us near to God and near to one another. But the Lord's Supper is also centrifugal. It empowers us and sends us out for mission and hospitality. So as the church moves outward from the Lord's Supper and toward our neighbors, we hope to see our neighbors move inward via our dining rooms, through our neighborhood parish tables, and ultimately to enjoy the Eucharist. It's a simple diagram, but it's anything but easy. Hospitality is anything but easy. It can be expensive, it can be intrusive, it can be inconvenient, but we will be blessed because we are extending the hospitality of a king who has no lack. There's no scarcity gap in the kingdom of God. So as promised, I want to return to that quote from Alan Hirsch. A working definition of missional church is a community of God's people that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. My goal has been to affirm this definition, but to do so by centralizing the Eucharist. The Eucharist forms us into a community. The Eucharist defines the church and organizes the life of the church. The Eucharist restores us to our real purpose as God's covenant people, the agent of God's mission to the world. In short, the Eucharist accomplishes everything the missional church desires to accomplish. 
It does a better job of organizing and mobilizing the church than any of our cutting-edge missional strategies, if we allow it. Plus, when the Eucharist is our missional propellant, that's just another way of saying Jesus is our missional propellant. We are restored and nourished and energized for mission via communion with Christ. Churches do not need culturally savvy, forward-thinking, highly charismatic super-pastors. We need pastors who are humble enough to get out of the way. We need, we need pastors who know where true nourishment is to be found. We lead the flock to green pasture and living water, and then we let them eat and drink. As I mentioned earlier, there, there is still work to be done with the word hospitality. Church members come with preconceived ideas about what that word means. But that is the sort of redefining I am happy and eager to do. Especially because I can simultaneously teach on the centrality of the Eucharist. This concept um, may also leave out various other dimensions of the cultural mandate. Um, but by centralizing the Eucharist, I think we have a springboard for talking about pretty much every other element of the Christian life. And, and so when I consider how the, the Theopolitan vision um, is giving shape to our young, fledgling church plant, the three tables concept is what immediately comes to mind. By no means are we the model for actually putting these things into practice. By, by no means. We have plenty of room to grow in this sort of hospitable living, but I am um, excited about the future. Please pray with me. Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. Now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.